This is Unorthodox, the universe's leading Jewish podcast. I am Stephanie Butnick, and I'm joined by my co-host, tablet editor-at-large, Liel Leibovitz. Who won no awards this week. And our third co-host, straight out of the Tony Award-winning play, Leopold Shot. Huzzah. Joshua Molina. Hurrah. I think I'm technically Tony adjacent. I mean, best play Tony. is an award <laughs> for the man or woman who writes the play. So technically, Tom Stoppard won the best But you are the part play. of the uh, yes, cast Yes, I've of... glommed on once again to <laughs> what uh, other, people's, really did other very, people's success. He really did very little to bring Leopold Stott to life. Let's be honest here. We all know who the real star is. Yeah, there's nothing without the actors. That's it's right. just a play. It's, it's just, just a bunch of words on a page. It's a, it's a book. That's you right. don't win best book. It's a best play. You made it. It is amazing. Tony Award winner, Josh and Melina. And we are keeping with our, our Broadway theme today. Our Jew of the Week is comedian Alex Edelman. His show, Just For Us, is headed to Broadway this summer. And then our Gentile of the Week is the writer Will Leach. He's a novelist and sports journalist. And in honor of Father's Day, he told us about coaching his son's Little League team. So it's a really, really, really fun show. But yeah, I'm still not recovered from watching the Tonys. But you really? Were- Why? Was it draining? Well, it's like a long night. It is a long <laughs> night. Yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted too. I'm fried because we partied into the morning, which was a lot of fun. So tell us about... So what... the Tonys themselves were held at a smaller venue this year than Radio City Music Hall. So alas, the cast was not invited. We had a <laughs> lovely, though, viewing party at a place called Haswell Greens. Free plug. We watched as four out of our six nominees won. Patrick Marber won for Best Director. Brandon Uranowitz won for Featured Actor in a Play. Our costume designer, Brigitte Reifenstuhl, also won. She won the first of the night for us. And then we won Best Play. I filmed it all. The place erupted every time we won. It was a complete so, thrill. Hold on, hold on. Not something so, you could even really realistically hope for as an actor in, in one's career. So many questions. The actors are not invited to the Tonys? I mean, I think sometimes they are, but Radio City seats, I think, about 6,000 people. This venue way uptown seats about 3,000. Yeah, but so who's more important than you? It turns out at least 3,000 other people. Yeah, you people I was not offended. Never, I mean, I would have loved to go, but... But there's a lot of people on stage at the end of the night for those best play, best musicals. Yes, I've been telling people I was there. <laughs> I actually was looking for you. I was in the back, I'm sure. <laughs> I was like, I'm sure he's somewhere up there. Who are all those people? Yeah, those are, uh, I guess, those are the money people. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So oh, Jews. Okay. Yeah, the money Jews are on stage. <laughs> the acting Jews are backstage. Okay, so 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 the the usurper, the parasite class, are the ones on stage, and the workers, the laborers, yeah. do not own the mean of production. They, they, that is they exactly sit in a, right. In a bar and drink. So first of all, are you drinking from the moment this telecast begins? I had a little pregame prior <laughs> because <laughs> our, mat- our matinee got out at five thirty, and then the broadcast didn't start till eight. And it, the bar made clear to us that we weren't welcome until exactly eight. And we had a lot of booze left over from a previous party that all got left at my apartment. So I invited people to start drinking early, early and often, and we did. And then I uh, I switched over to mezcal sours. Oh, uh, a drink I'd never had before. <laughs> And will never have again? No, I think I will have many times again. I, I stand by it. It was good. It's, it's I mean, there was a lot secret. of drinking. It's... We have kids in the cast, so they were there going nuts until three in the morning. So they were not Shirley drinking. Uh, yeah, a lot of Shirley Temples. And then there was uh, dancing. I danced within an inch of a cardiac event. <laughs> That's how much fun I had. <laughs> Which for me is three steps. Now, is there actual tension? Like, do you sit there being... First of all, you're yeah. the, like the, one of the last categories, right? I mean, you're... Yeah, best play... Well, I feel like by the time best play came, which, uh, which is the penultimate 
category because apparently musical theater is a higher uh, genre. By then, we really felt we had the momentum that we felt like the favorite and that it was likely to happen. But I had a, I had a, you know, obviously I had no real skin in the game. I wasn't nominated, but I felt agitated on behalf of Patrick Marber and Brandon Uranowitz. We, I really wanted them t- to win, and I can only imagine how. It's all, of course, also awards for pieces of art are kind of silly. Kim kept preparing one thing to another. But that okay, being said, so once is, you're nominated, you want to win. This is my next question. On the one hand, I could imagine you're an artist. Say, so this is the silliest thing. Who are you to say like, oh, this play is better than this play. Like, it's so subjective and so stupid. On the other hand, I could imagine a, a state of mind in which this is the not only the most important thing in the world, the only important thing in the world. Where are you? Were you like, I've never been nominated for anything, so I think it's all <laughs> bullshit. Well, but, but, do you, but do you have an Emmy? That being said, if there are any that. Jewish producers out there, were I to be nominated and were I to win, I would walk on stage, don a kippah, and say the Shachianu. <laughs> I think it would be a great, a great moment for our people. Which, by the way, like basically almost happened on Sunday night at the Tonys, right? Like it was a super Jewy night. It was a very good night for the Jews. That's true. Leopoldstadt won. Parade won. Brandon Uranowitz, Patrick Marber, I'm sure other Jews went as so well. So yeah. stories about dead Jews Good are, are making Jews. Broadway sizzle. Yeah, well, I mean, unfortunately, or fortunately, I, I'm glad that stories of Jewish substance are being told. And I suspect that it's stories of anti-Semitism that is creating a greater alertness to the importance of telling our stories and having representation. So as you noted on, on Twitter, you are now halfway to an EGOT. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, what Emmy. I call the vicarious EGOT. I mean, I was in the West Wing and we won an Emmy that I really can take no credit for. Were you on stage for that? I was on stage for that. My dear friend Ron Ostro, who played small roles in the West Wing, stepped in front of me. And so I couldn't be seen. I was like, thanks, Ron. Thanks a lot. I'm a regular. Uh, no, so that was exciting. And, uh, and now I've won a Tony that I don't really deserve. I just need to. I need a Grammy and an Oscar in someone else's good work. And then I'll be a vicarious EGOT. So a VGOT. Last week we were talking about the PGOTs. These are the VGOTs. Yes. I feel like we could probably do a Grammy. I can't eat that. I'm a VGOT. I'm sorry. (laughs) I also had a monumentous, it wasn't Tony level, but in terms of saying the Shehechianu, I did something for the first time. And I want to be, I pride myself on being open with, maybe too open with our listeners from last week. But I want to tell everyone that I hosted my first Shabbat dinner since Edith. And maybe since like the one time I did it like 10 years ago. (laughs) Beautiful. (laughs) But it was amazing. I kept saying, oh, you know, I think I'd totally do a Shabbat dinner if it was on Saturday. If I had like time to really time to prepare Friday, it just seems so rushed. How do you get everything together in time? And you didn't want the Shabbos lunch. You wanted the whole dinner No, no, no. I wanted the dinner because it felt like I wanted the Friday night thing. And so I think I had been building it up as like it has to be perfect. Everything has to be homemade. And what do kids do? And when do they sleep? And all this stuff. And I just did it. I basically just called friends and I was like, Friday night, 5.30, just be here. We're going to figure out the food. We'll figure it out. And so we brought in food. We picked we picked it up. And it was amazing. The kids sat at a little tiny table. They, they ate family style, which I don't think anyone was familiar with. But I was like, here's all your food. It was so sweet. And, and I think that the lesson is that, like, it doesn't actually have to be perfect. And none of this stuff has to be perfect. Am I just saying obvious things to people? Like, You're saying like, what? No, I think it's, those are things that need to be repeated and reinforced. We never have people over because it's like, oh, the apartment was messy. This kids came over. Edith was like showing them all her toys. She was so happy. We danced to Taylor Swift all night. Like, it was just so... I feel as, like you're validating my whole approach to life. I'm not a type Swift? A. No, like type M. 
Just be type Malina. M. Type yes, Malina. We're somewhere in the middle. It's so true because, and I think that a lot of us are like, what if I don't know the prayers? What if I forget the words? What if the tune is different than I'm used sure. to? I was just like, let's just do some prayers, eat some challah. And it felt so good. I'm trying to take that with me into other things, into other like Jewish things, but also like life things. That's beautiful. I think you're encouraging listeners to do the same. That's great. Yeah. And so everyone can come over to my place. And maybe one day you'll teach me how to do it. Liel, you know, does like a seven course meal. I can only imagine. There's an ice cream. like of doing type Aleph over there. I I really type (laughs) Aleph, Aleph. I mean, it's, it's. A A, uh, yeah, no, I I wish I could do it. I think it's I think it's the correct spiritual, emotional, psychological approach to life, and and I understand there is something wrong with me. I need help, but Stephanie. People who go to your like seders love the seventeen course, uh, right? The forty course, forty years. You know, 40 you know, you know who doesn't love it? Me. Huh. At the end of the night, on the floor, being like, I'm never doing this again, and then you do it again the next week. You're like, ah, oh, okay. I remember having an early dinner party. It wasn't Shabbos dinner, but my wife, my then girlfriend at the time, and all the men were lying supine on the floor afterwards. <laughs> I'm like, I think this is a success. <laughs> it was a heavy, heavy and filling dinner. Right. It's amazing. The men are incapacitated. <laughs> if no one could move, the dinner party is successful. Okay, so uh, you're doing it again this Friday, of course. Friday, Friday, I'll, Friday, I'll be Friday. There. Day when the sun goes down. I'll be there around six. Uh, I know who wasn't invited. I'm, I'm, you guys I'm can sit at the was. kids' table. <laughs> the chairs are really doing comfortable. Well, we'll do it together. That'll be really, really fun. That would be nice. News of the Jews. Oh, yeah. N-O-T-J News of the Jews. All right, let's get to some news of the other Jews in this universe. To start us off, friend of the show, David Beshefkin, tweeted a billboard that he saw. And this billboard said, Judaism, come for your girlfriend, stay for the lack of hell. And these are those Jubilong posters that like, you know, cheeky posters about like when you think Kugel is a Kegel, all that stuff. Right, right. And so this sort of really, really picked up when he posted it. And he said, there's got to be a better tagline for Judaism. I think there's got to be a better beginning than come for your girlfriend. <laughs> I mean, depends on where the uh, where the billboard is. In yeah. L.A.? I don't know. Maybe. True. Come for wool, stay for linen. <laughs> I've always found those Jubilong posters to be just like repugnant. It's like the punny and like pandry and uninformed. Like they're just really the absolute worst. And I I have no doubt that the people behind them are nice people who are trying to do a good thing. But like, really, this is this is how you market us. I think you want the job of making the billboard for Judaism. No, I I just don't want billboards for Judaism. How about that? I don't want any billboard. How about the billboard be like Judaism? We can't fit this shit on a billboard. Ooh, that's not bad. (laughs) You know, not terrible. Well, it's like the you're welcome campaign. Yeah. Judaism. See under Bible. All this said, may I, can I raise a substantive question? What is Gehenna? I thought Gehenna was some sort of Jewish so concept like hell? of hell. So, but is so, it more so, a waiting so we, room? So we, could be, we really could be here all week. There is so much about actual Jewish hell, Sheol, Gehenna. I'm like, there's actually a lot, but the, the most kind of informed TLDR summary I, I could offer here about Jewish views on the afterlife, both good and bad, heaven and hell, is that we are singularly not focused on that. Uh, because once you start thinking like, wow, what happens? Like it, it is not an accounting program. It is not like, you know, win 10 points and you get a seat. In like, Which is surprising because we love accounting. We do love Good accounting. Point. And numbers. But we love it here. That's exactly the point. Because we, we want to pay very close attention to what we do when we have 
agency over our lives here on this planet, not what happens to us when we go to other places. There's definitely olam haba. There's definitely the world to come. Definitely an afterlife. There are definitely punishments. There's definitely bad things and good things. But we I know the, when I attended a reconstructionist synagogue, the afterlife is removed from like the Amida, and I would always mutter it back in. <laughs> I'm, not giving up, I'm not giving up the possibility. Come on, guys. That you have to pull out? Right. That you take away from what us. Uh, no, but it's, it's just, it's, Really, this billboard is just... I think that a billboard campaign for Judaism would be funny, but I don't know how effective it is in New York City, which I think is where all these billboards are. Like, there's one going into the Lincoln Tunnel. I think billboards in, like, the middle of the country. I think it's actually the other way around. I think if you're in the middle of the country, you know... That's what the billboards say, like, Jesus... Call right, but, but also in the middle of the country, like if you're a Jew, you actually have to do shit to be Jewish. You have to make active decisions. Here's like, hey, you know, I'm just hanging out. I'm, you know, kind of a cultural Jew because I like my bagels and I don't know anything about anything. So we need, if anything, the, the campaigns here. But how about the campaign is just like, hey, you know, Judaism, check it, check it out. Here's, also, is, is this know. technically proselytizing, which I thought was a no-no? Uh, it's technically only a no-no because of very concrete historical reasons. There's nothing really inherent about. Oh, because like not, if you tried to get someone to be Jewish, right, they just like you would get murdered, murdered by we the king or the whatever. Perpetually a minority, and so well, traditionally. But we haven't given up a lot of stuff that got us killed over the years. <laughs> just we we're like proselytizing. We'll <laughs> give that up if, if we're going we're down that, with the, that route. Yeah. Right. This is proselytizing for Jews. Hmm. It's like how about? Oh, be Jewish? I see what you're saying. Right. It's just no, but this know? actually is this this billboard. The, the fine print is that it's advertising a free wedding booklet, probably for interfaith couples. So, I'm less tough on the like people who like bagels and are curious about more. I always want to be a place where people can like come to learn more, and I like that. And, and a billboard is. Can we is do what a billboard? What's our production budget like for the year? Let's what blow it on a billboard. Can we get Judaism to hire us to do a billboard? <laughs> That's the real question. Judaism's not hiring at the moment. <laughs> uh, darn it. It's downsizing. <laughs> but it is so funny. Like, I think we have this whole mindset of like, I wouldn't want to, what is it? I, the Groucho Marx thing. Never I, join a club that would have me as a member. Which I've just taken to be like about Judaism, even though I don't know. To me, it's such a Jewish quote. I think there's something funny about seeing these billboards. We're like, don't tell, don't tell them. Don't tell them about Judaism. Don't tell them about what? Judaism. The Judaism exists. Yeah, like we got this, we got this <laughs> Guys, club going. <laughs> we're, we're trying to be on the down though. I do just want to point out that producer Quinn Waller has sent me a billboard about 30 minutes from where she grew up in Ohio that says hell is real. So that is sort of the counter billboard. There it is. I mean, if you're in Ohio, ayo, <laughs> hell is real. Just look to your right. So, okay, more on the sort of messaging marketing front. This news comes to us. From JTA, here's the headline, Polish city throws children's bubble party on top of Jewish graves. <laughs> that, that was the invite. <laughs> Do you feel like that Leopold was like... Leopoldstadt <laughs> 2, the revenge. Dancing on Jewish graves. Okay, uh. this is basically something called Children's Day, which is celebrated on June 1st in many European countries. And this is, in, this, is, <laughs> this is in Kazimierz Dolny in eastern Poland. There was this party that just happened. It was a bubble party. It looks like the part of a horror movie where, like, the smoke comes up from the ground, but it's <laughs> bubbles. So the chief rabbi of Poland, Michael Shudrick, got very mad about this. He sent an angry letter, according to JTA, to the mayor of the city. So basically, the chief rabbi of Poland says, how dare you guys throw this party on the site of a former Jewish cemetery where there are bodies still the deputy mayor said, I regret the decision to organize Children's Day. We share a common history and a common home, and it was never our intention to hurt feelings. It was human error. I hope that this event will not interfere with our dialogue and cooperation in the future. I extend my apologies to you and the Jewish community. But it gets better. 
because Poland's chief rabbi, Michael Shudrick, has said that they keep trying to work <laughs> with the, the mayors of this town to move either the cemetery or like the children's... Or the bubble party. Yeah, the bubble party. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I got one two which, good solutions. One of which is arguably easier to move than the other. And they're like, we're, we're literally trying, we're working with the town council to try to move the cemetery so it will not also be a playground. Were I to make a movie, the bubbles, the massive bubbles would form golem-like yes. into a, uh, and slaughter all the children. It's like a Ghostbusters remake. And, oh, and, I love it. And then they would haunt uh, everyone in the sequel. See, although I'm looking at this photo and it does not look like they're standing in actual graves. I think it's like a former cemetery where bodies are still buried. And by the way, Poland, a very unpleasant history with Jewish gravestones, right? They were used, they were literally, many of them taken out of the ground and used to pave roads. I've been on roads that are paved with Ugh. Jewish gravestones. It's it's very, very, very dicey. It's not a good There look. may be nowhere in Poland to have a bubble party that's that doesn't true. somehow that's a, desecrate yes, the that's, Jews. That's true. <laughs> so maybe no bubble parties. Yeah, a bubby party. That would, yes. be, that would be more appropriate. Yes, that is exactly what we're talking about here. Bubby parties every week here on Unorthodox. <laughs> All right, we're going to pivot to some other strange news. Also from JTA, this time from Vienna. Vienna to tilt statue of anti-Semitic mayor 3.5 degrees to the right to shift perspective. I love it. Not to the left, <laughs> mind you, but to the right. The city of Vienna will tilt the statue of an anti-Semitic former mayor 3.5 degrees to the right in order to shift the viewer's, quote, perspective on it, a move that some Jewish leaders are calling an inadequate way to deal with a dark chapter of the city's history. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Karl Luger served yes. as mayor of Vienna for 13 years until his death in 1910. He was known for anti-Semitic rhetoric that is said to have inspired Adolf Hitler, who lived in Vienna as a young man. Hitler wrote in Mein Kampf that he had, quote, undisguised admiration for Luger. Schöner Karl, I believe he's known as Handsome Karl because he was handsome. Um, and he's mentioned several times in Leopoldstadt, which, and I will stop mentioning Leopoldstadt the when we Tony close Award on July winning. 2nd. Leopoldstadt. <laughs> 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 Wait, that's uh, amazing. But yeah, so they're tilting his statue, not taking it down, mind you. If you ask me which of these two news items offends more me offensive. more. It's like hero polls doing something, whatever, you could argue, sensitive, insensitive, fine. They're having a party for kids. It's just a normal expression of life. Here are the fucking Austrians being like, yeah, you know what this is the appropriate way to deal with our Nazi heritage, which, by the way, if we totally started because everyone who did this comes from here, uh, we will tilt it three and a half degrees to the right. I'm no yeah. geography expert, but I think they're tilting it towards the bubble party in Poland. Correct. <laughs> He's like, that way. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> we have taken over once. We have some designs for you. I, I don't like taking down statues, but like, why are you moving? Okay, but how about this? The statue situated in a square called Dr. Karl Lugerplatz in the city center. <laughs> are they going to tilt the sign? It's, yes, it's been hit with vandalism for years by protesters who call for its total dismantling. Yeah, they should tilt all of Vienna. It's really Yeah, the whole thing. The president of the European Jewish Congress and the former president of Vienna's Jewish community said, tilting the statue is a half-hearted approach to dealing with this issue. At the very least, the local authority should change the name of the square and many of the other locations in Vienna bearing Luger's name. Gee, you think? Really? A half-hearted approach. How about like, these people are still fucking filthy anti-Semites. <laughs> so I'm so curious about the physics of this because you like tilting a statue seems hard. I'm the experts from Pisa are being flown in. Exactly. And is there like a sign that's like, we tilted this because this guy. And it's no, it's no going to fall free. on somebody too now. 
free force Mark my Jewish, Jewish labor to, to do that for him. It's so weird because that's probably more work than just like getting rid, like doing anything else. Well, how, what do we think about getting rid of statues or do we prefer to keep them and put them in some sort of historical context? Like, like he wasn't that great. <laughs> how about a plaque suggesting that he was a vicious, rabid anti-Semite? I, but, I, keep the, but keep the statue. Fully, fully on board with that. That's exactly yeah. what I think. I think, I think you should keeper. also keep the, the name. And have some kind of, you know, activity asterisk? plaque. Not asterisk, but like, yeah, a plaque that says like, hey, come here, look at this like very large sign that will tell you, like, this is the person's yeah. contribution to our town. This is also... This right. person's contribution you to know, Hitler. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> this is also responsible for some some millions of, of Jews slaughtered. And, and that's what kind of an intelligent, morally serious, responsible nation. But here's the thing, like increasingly... When you look at the responses of the actual perpetrators of the Holocaust, by which I really mean Germany, it's always these kind of like symbolic sleight of hand tricks like, oh, we're going to do this and then no one will notice. And then, hey, everyone, the Poles were the real anti-Semites. You know, the Poles like, no, you did this. This is your fault. And there's never any kind of real reckoning. There's always a sort of like, well, you know, it's very complicated. I think the solution might be a bubble party on Peter Lugerplatz. Like, I think that's where we should be doing P- this. Peter Luger? Yeah. <laughs> Peter Lugerplatz. And they'll serve beautiful exactly. steaks, prime rib, age, 10 years. Carl Lugerplatz. Peter, Peter Lugerplatz. Lugerplatz. Right. I mean, it's delicious. There's no topping that. But it's no, not done. kosher. Those of our listeners no, out I, in the When York. I stopped eating unkosher beef out of the house, I then went to Peter Luger's with the rest of my family, and I've never had a more withering look than when I asked about the fish. The 79-year-old waiter was like, The fish? I'll go blow the dust off of it and bring it out. An Orthodox Bubby Bubble Party in Vienna next year. I like that idea. I like it a lot. Our Jew of the Week is comedian and friend of mine and friend of the podcast, Alex Edelman. His show, Just For Us, is headed to Broadway for the summer. He came on Unorthodox when the show first opened in New York in 2021. So we decided to have him back to celebrate this incredible Jewish accomplishment. Alex Edelman, welcome back to Unorthodox. Thank you so much. When you were first on the show, it was the fall of 2021, and your show was just coming to New York in a theater downtown. Now, your show's about to open on Broadway. Broadway. And Broadway. I think it's way older Broadway. to say. And you are so much more famous now. I mean... Hot shot. I mean, I mean no. <laughs> but I... No, but I'm, really, we want to know, how, how has fame and success changed you? Well, first of all, I'm not Jewish anymore. I'm, <laughs> I'm using this opportunity to let everyone know that I've uh, actually joined the Nation of Islam. And... Uh, <laughs> He's right about you, isn't he? But uh, <laughs> no. uh, you people. But uh, no, I am. These are all going to sound like cliches, but it's nice to do something that gets appreciation, and it's nice to do work that feels seen by people who look. I grew up modern Orthodox, and there wasn't a lot of stuff for me. 
like the stuff that I found relatability in was either me reaching for something that wasn't aimed at me or me sort of enjoying something that was so insular that it couldn't possibly have any translation to the world. Right. It was like Uncle Moishi in the midst of that. Like mm-hmm. it was very, it was, it was, it was very much jokes about kidney oat. Yeah, stuff exactly. Like that, yeah. It's Fachem and Amma, you know, like stuff like that. And so to do something that seems to have found a little sweet spot between people who are modern Orthodox, people who are Orthodox, people who are conservative reform, any sort of Jewish have enjoyed the show and found it to be for them. But it's also nice to, you know, I did the show in Boston for audiences that were largely not Jewish. And I've done the show in Williamstown in Western Massachusetts for, and, and even downtown in New York, more than half the audience wasn't Jewish. And so it's nice to do a thing that feels both for me and for people who have an upbringing that's similar to me and also seems to have some valence to the to the greater thing. I, I so that's hear, been really, really nice. I want to hear much more about these different experiences. But before we continue, for the benefit of those of our listeners who might have forgotten since your last appearance on Unorthodox, tell us a little bit about the show. The way I sum it up in one line is I went to this meeting of white nationalists in Queens and eventually when I was like, sorry, this guy's Jew. And I'm like, yeah, I'm a Jew. And so like, that's what the show is about. <laughs> and so, uh, but also <laughs> there are offshoots of that. It's a comedy show. So it's mostly, it's full of jokes. If you like theater, it's got theater. If you don't like theater, it's got comedy. And it's been iterative. It's had different sort of versions. Josh, actually, I think you saw a version of it. Where Early it incarnation like in LA. workshopped, basically. It's been a sort of like exploration. I'm using air quotes if you can't see me. But yeah, it's sort of an exploration of identity and a sort of conversation about Jews and their relationship to whiteness and what that means now and sort of the limits of our empathy. There are different there are different things within the show, but the larger story is Jew goes to a meeting of people who don't like Jews and sits there and listens for a while and then says something and then, you know, there's tension. And there's a big question, which is like, will he be killed at the end of it? And I don't want to spoil it for anyone. <laughs> so how has it changed? Tell us a little bit about the process of trying to figure out, first of all, what the play always wanted to be. But second of all, how to kind of question. transform it for Broadway, for a larger kind of state. I did the show the other night in a 1,600-seat venue in Boston, and it was by far the largest it's ever played to, and it still sort of felt similar. An intimate story is an intimate story in any space that will allow it to be one. But I think my director, Adam Brace, and I spent a lot of time trying to find, uh, and Mike Birbiglia, who's one of the presenters of the show and probably the unquestioned master of the American comedy theater blend, try to find sort of a biting point between stuff that felt both authentically personal to my experience and also might provoke something in conversation after the show, in thought during the show. And so those decisions are mostly curatorial, right? Like using a certain word can tank your show or put it in a different space. You know what I mean? Like every word now carries behind it like this comet's right. trail of meaning. Like if I say the word woke right away, like you're listening to this podcast that means something to you. I don't use the word woke in the show, but like it's so interesting how, I guess Talmudic is the wrong word, but like, you know how in the Torah you're like, there is no wasted word in the Torah and every word is like ripe for exegesis. I'm not being like, I t- take the same approach with my show, but like, Truly, but truly, I am as circumspect with what I'm saying and how I'm saying it on stage over the course of an hour and a half. And so that lets the show become a little denser and a little more thoughtful and a little more focused about what I'm saying and how. But like, yeah, full jokes have come out. New jokes have come in. The show at the beginning of a run will be an hour and 30 minutes. And at the end, it'll be an hour and 25. And there's more in there somehow. Like for some reason, the like, show is like an organism that keeps that keeps uh 
God, I, I, I feel like I sound so pretentious. No, 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 you have a reservation, you know, like you have to have dinner after this. And so the show can't be like an hour and 40 minutes. The show is going to be an hour between an hour and 23 and an hour and 30. And like, I feel like servicing that as a performer is really, really like nice and, and fun. Like it's going to be, that's going to be the show. And do, do you have an inner awareness or is somebody holding up yeah, the sign saying no, you're at an hour 15? I'm not kidding. I have a to the minute inner awareness. I would come off stage and, and Adam would be like, how long do you think? I'm like, 128, 26. You're like, 128, 45. I find this I find this so mind-boggling. And this is why. So you're not just performing. You're not just reading a script, but you're telling a story of a very emotional experience that happened to you, mm -hmm. that that resonates with you because of who you are. Is that emotional intimacy ever lost? Or in other words, how hard is it to keep it going on? Because you're going out there and now you're these doing are the great questions. same thing night after night in a very kind of, as you said, carefully constructed, curated way. And yet you never want to lose the emotional connection, right? So I'm going to lean into the pretentiousness here because I'm like, I'm Go not going to try to be, oh, you It's know. a safe space. Listen, if you, if you don't know who David Foster Wallace and uh, <laughs> Rev, Rev, Rev Joseph Salvatic are in this podcast, then I am not for you. But you know, like, uh, um, there's this fragment from Heraclitus, which is a man can never <laughs> quote him in. all the time. Oh, yeah, on this no, show. of course. I mean, Heraclitus I just of, of the Boston Celtics. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we have all the all the Heraclitus fridge magnets at home. It's like rupee cop, you know, like. A, but it's um, a man can never step into the same river twice, for he is not the same man, and it is not the same river. Every show is different. And also, Absolutely. by the way, even though I really don't want audiences talking to me, the show is a dialogue. The show is like, there is no pretense that the show is happening and you're watching it. I come out, I'm like, hi, how are you doing? I'm going to tell you a story. It's the first line of the show. I'll tell you a story about something that happened to me. But first, I want to tell you about something. And then I tell you about something else. And then get back into the story and sort of wind in and out. But the pretense is that I'm telling you a story. So ultimately, it's just me telling a story to you know, before every show, we do five goals on this whiteboard, mm. me and my director. And a lot of the time, the goal has, one of the goals is you're just telling the story to blank. Like if I have a friend in the, in the show sometimes, like if Berbiglia comes, some, usually a goal will be, you're just telling the story to Mike. Like I'm just telling the story to a person. I'm telling it with a different, all of us have stories that we've told a dozen times, a hundred times. The stories are never exactly the same. There are things you know that you should hit because those are the exciting things that make the story that you're telling something that people can be like, oh my God. But really, I'm just telling a story in a way that's like, I have a lot of focus. I'm very careful about what I'm doing, but like, I am just telling a story. So it's a lot more fun, I imagine, than it would be to just go up there and read like a script or a monologue word for word. And it is undoubtedly a monologue. And I'm I'm told there is a script somewhere, but like like there's a transcript that I guess has been edited. But like, no, the, the show is just a story that I tell people with other little offshoots that I think are relevant. Could you imagine someone else performing this piece? I would love. You would. They, someone said to me, and my agent was like, would you like to, would you like to talk about licensing the show? Yeah. And I was like, I'm dying to see it. Like, I just want to go see the show. I've never seen the show. Right. I also want to do sort of like a one night charity performance 
where it's eight people at a table reading the transcript and none of them are like straight Completely Orthodox different. Jewish men. Like <laughs> I want like Cynthia Revo and Josh Groban and just like sitting there doing actually. like, I think it'd be so fun Although, to watch like I'll Cynthia f- do like this story about how my family had Christmas or this non-Jewish woman. I think he would just love it. How funny would it be? Mel Gibson is Alex Edelman. Do you know, I have... I wrote something that was like really, really Jewish and meant a lot to me, like for a TV thing. And I'll tell you after because I I can't say it on here. And they were like, my agent called. They're like, we have really good news and really bad news. And the good news is an Oscar winner really wants to play this role. The bad news is that it's Mel Gibson. And I was like, oh, wow. And they're like, will you meet with Mel Gibson? I was like, obviously I'd meet with Mel Gibson. Like, I'm not sure if you've seen my show, but you're like, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Mel Gibson would be, would be, I want to see Mel Gibson play a Jewish character. Like I truly am at a point in my life where I'm curious about what that would look like. <laughs> I can hear your email inbox exploding already, but I mean, wouldn't it be interesting? Like what a, it would be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> have to spend six months at, you know, at a show in Muncie researching this role. <laughs> and they're like, so Mel, Pretty crazy. You know, like, <laughs> it's a Rabbi Akiva biopic. Super bloody with like Bar Kokhba rebellion. Yeah, no, I would yeah. love to see Mel. Actually, someone told me, I think Mel Gibson was interested in doing like the Bar Kokhba rebellion. I think someone. <laughs> I mean, Mel, be- Mel call, call, call our agents. Yeah, we're done. Freedom. <laughs> There's something you said in our last interview that I think about all the time. And it had nothing to do with your show. It had to do with the project. Did a smoked fish that we ate at that. Yes, <laughs> it, yes, yes. Yeah. It was a beautiful day. But you know, you said that about a, a project you had been working on, a Jewish project. You said, I think your rule was, was it no bubbies, no brisket, no, no bagels? bagels? No bubbies, no brisket, no bagels. I think about that, you know, for my own work, right? This idea of like staying away from like the kitschy surface level stuff. Mm. That really is what you do, right? Like you really probe deep into the Jewish stuff. I noticed when I started making things that there's a lot of low hanging fruit and I'm really frustrated with the sort of like, I live in Los Angeles. There's a bagel place near me. And they're not Jewish. And it's okay. Like, people who aren't Jewish should be able to make bagels. Fantastic. Uh, we have overcome. You know, like, it's very nice that we're at a place where people are making Jewish food. <laughs> we have gifted this to the world. Well, you know what? Jewish food and, and Israeli food, very, very hot right now. Like, people are making and enjoying Jewish food in a way that is, as a commercial entity, which is actually what you want, right? You want people making Jewish food, not just because they have a historical connection, but also because they think there's a viable commercial or artistic or culinary aspect to it, right? Like truly that is the high, that is the high level. Mm-hmm. But you know, I go on their, on their menu and they're like, have a schmear, you know, like it's, it's, <laughs> there's something about it that makes my teeth itch and I don't want, and like, I'm not going to like call them out for it on social media. I think that's really churlish. But like, I want to make stuff that actually, again, is really like high-minded, but I want to make stuff that actually like pushes the conversation on Jewish art forward in a way if I can. Like when we made Saturday Night Seder, we were so proud of that because everything in it, from the sketches that we did to Josh's charity ask, because Josh was part of that, like everything had a specificity that you can recognize as being really funny and really unique and unmistakably Jewish, but it it wasn't something you could just sort of like read up on and get to. The thing that made me learn that is there's a movie called Four Lions and it's made by these like four white guys. One of them I think is one of the minds behind Succession and it's brilliant and it's about four Muslim suicide bombers in the UK. It's It's Riz Ahmed's first starring role. It's absolutely spectacular. 
And it's written and directed by these four white guys. And for British Muslims, it's like their favorite movie because they got the cast very involved and they embedded themselves. And there is a real way to make art that doesn't depend on like shtick or pastiche. Like I hate shtick. I don't like pastiche. What does it do? What's the point of it? And it doesn't mean that there aren't at, like, I still like the stories of Isaac Basheva Singer are like these beautiful, gorgeous stories, but it's not because like they're steadily. It's because like, like there's a story called The Disguised about this woman who's married and her husband runs away and she goes off after him because she's this abandoned woman. She has no, she has no get, right? So she needs to find this husband and she goes on this incredible journey of self-discovery and then she sees him in the market dressed as a woman. And like, it's actually this very contemporary, gorgeous story that's actually timeless. And its timelessness has nothing to do with the fact that it's like set in a shtetl or that the characters are speaking Yiddish to each other or that the cadence is, you know, a very like, you know, what you'd associate with like <laughs> Fievel goes west or something like that. But like, there's a real humanity to that Judaism that just doesn't work for me when I see it engaged with totemically. Like, it's okay to have like, Bubbies and brisket and bagels. It just can't be what your thing is about. So I'm like very, it's like my number one bug and all the Jewish artists that I work with who get it, those are my people all the way through, like Taffy Achner, Benj Pasek, the people that understand that Jewish art is about Jewish people and not Jewish things. That's my number one. Nathan Englander. Nathan Englander. There's no one who's had a bigger impact on me in my life artistically than Nathan Englander. Like the stories of Nathan Englander, like he's like our Isaac Basheva singer. He's the most chronically underappreciated, but still influential short story writer. And his, stu his stuff is funny. And it's, he was one of my professors at NYU, but I went to NYU partially because Nathan Englander was teaching there. Like he, like I've always sought out that great Jewish art and I really want more of it. And so I, w I just wish there was, you know, wish there was a little bit more, but there's some good stuff too. So sorry, you, sorry, that was such a ramble. That was a beautiful like, that was answer. Amazing. Like, so of course the correct question, once you're just embarking on a huge project on Broadway, what's the next big dream? Well, first of all, I'm turning some, something from the show into a movie once the writer strikes over and I've, I have a television show that's, that a broadcaster just agreed to do, but again, those are all on hold. I'm going to write a book. Because I didn't want to adapt the story, but I'm going to write a book about places I don't belong. And I'm going to sit with more people that aren't uh, like me. Because I the think classic Jewish book, Places I Don't Belong. Yeah, I think <laughs> the book's going to be called something like I Don't Belong Here. And I think a thing that struck a chord with people outside of the, both inside and outside of Judaism, is that because of the internet and because of a sort of balkanization that we've all had, I think that we're not having these sort of like fulsome experiences with people who aren't like us. Unless they're sort of like blue reporter parachutes into Trump country for, you know, an exploration right. of why he... Of, for a day. You know, exactly. So I think I'm going to do some things where I sit around with like people who have genuinely different viewpoints that are of valence. And we'll see how that all goes. But also Broadway, like this show, the show going to Broadway is like the craziest thing <laughs> in the world. Like I cannot conceive of the... It used to play like Josh saw it in a room with like a hundred people. And so the fact that my like tiny show that like began in like a pub above a shoe store in like deep East London is getting to go to Broadway is like, I'm super focused on it. And I'm so bananas excited. And all of my comedy heroes have, you know, like, like Seinfeld came and Steve Martin came and like Billy Crystal came. And, and like, I know, and you that know, too. they're in the audience. I know they're in the audience when I walk out. I mean, I walked out when Seinfeld was there and I saw everyone looking and I was like, who's in the house seats? And his face is so unmistakable, like above the mask. And I thought like, how did anyone shoot Lincoln? 
Like, how did anyone shoot? Because wasn't every second, wasn't every audience member was like, does Lincoln think this is funny? Right. Like, does Lincoln think this is funny? And like, oh no, Lincoln, look at that guy. Like, you know. Although Lincoln was shot by like an, an, an actor. But not just an actor. His brother was Edwin Booth. Like right. the Booth Theater right. is named after the guy who killed Lincoln's brother, which is like, it's like if Emilio Estevez shot the president. <laughs> it's like, it's the weirdest thing Don't in the world. the ending. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's the craziest thing ever. <laughs> just like an actor's breath. And not just like an actor. Like, I think Edwin Booth was like the most famous actor. By the way, quick pivot to Steve Martin. A friend of mine who's in Leopold Shot did a play with Steve Martin and said to him once. Picasso? Was uh, it Picasso? Yes. And he's, uh, this is Matt Harrington, and said, I'm the Semitic Steve Martin. And without missing a beat, Steve Martin said, I guess that makes me the anti-Semitic Steve Martin. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh my God, he is. But I, oh my. He's my chief non-Jewish. I can hear any story about Steve Martin. I can hear any like it's like Mel Brooks. I heard such a great Mel Brooks anecdote from Bring it. from a, a writer who pitched a sketch to him about Hitler walking into the beer putsch hall, and he's got a full handlebar mustache like Raleigh Fingers, like the really and and he's like, I'm just gonna go trim, and he goes in, <laughs> and he trims one side. Ancient's the other, and it's just Can't not right. And eventually, right. he just winds up with a chaplain <laughs> Hitler mustache, and he comes out. One of the guys, he's with his like Hitler. What happened? He's like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and then the, the, the punchline that I love is 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 he walks away, and the guy goes, Wow, I've never seen him angry. <laughs> and so they pitch that to Mel, and Mel is uh, Dana Gould, a great comedy writer. And Mel's sitting there, and Mel just went, I don't want to do a Hitler joke, and then. <laughs> And then there's like 10 seconds of silence and Mel looks around the room and he goes, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. I love uh, writer's uh, room uh, stories. Uh, uh, the best. Are so funny and I'm so like sad that this writer's strike is going on but what I've been out there picketing a little bit with some of the other writers and just like the stories you hear like the, I mean, I'm thinking of a million right now, but just, I don't know, we're short. Will you ask me one more Broadway question before we go, just to be on theme? Because <laughs> Is there a specific question you want us to ask? I you? don't know. I really don't. These have all been How such good questions. Worst audience you've ever had? Worst audience I've ever had? When I was getting it ready in London, I did it in front of five people. Ooh. The ticketing platform had failed, and it had sent 65 people to an address that didn't exist in North London. And so I'm sitting in this pub in Putney, which is in Southwest London. And I'm like, where are these people? I'm getting lots of angry tweets. And so there are five people in a room that seats about a hundred people. And I was like, you guys can come down the front. People sat in their assigned seats. They're like, we're fine. <laughs> and I was like, please come down towards the front. And they were like, no. <laughs> and so at some point someone raised their hand. About 20 minutes in, I'm like, yeah. And they're like, is anyone else coming? And I was like, um, I think they, I was like, there was a snafu with the audience as I sat up top and they went, no, no, no. Like comedian, is there another comedian coming? <laughs> the opener. So that was pretty, That's that was pretty night. devastating. I mean, it's not the worst. The worst one I've ever done is England was in the World Cup in the semifinals and I had a gig scheduled that night and it was in England and it was a different show. But the audience is really not in the mood. I said, why don't we pause the show and we'll watch on someone's phone. <laughs> and then we start back up and the whole audience is like, and yeah. so we watched on someone's phone. Oh my God, that's funny. And I have never rooted so hard for any team. 
I was like, because if England wins. Right. And so England won and the crowd was like really ecstatic. And they were like, you know, someone was like, I'm buying beers to everyone. I was like, ah, but it was like, so, so yeah, England's given me some really weird ones. But for the most part in the US, the shows have been. You've not like, done Germany yet. I have. Oh my God. I did the show in Berlin at Soho House in Berlin to dead silence. <laughs> dead silence. That's how they express happiness. Oh right. my God. People have, you know, I did in Sweden or Russia, they are like, I opened for Eddie Izzard in Berlin and Moscow. And it was two shows to celebrate the 70th anniversary <laughs> of the end of World War II. They had one comedian from every country involved in the European theater. And I was the American. And um, by the way, I'm sorry, someone actually thought this is a thing that people did. Like, how about we get one comedian from every country that it's actually amazing. fought These in shows the war? Were incredible. They were wow. so cool. And this although one the place we performed is this place called Admiral's Palast in Berlin. And this guy showing us around, he went, That was Hitler's box. And I was <laughs> like, I've never seen him angry. No, no, no. I, I was like, I was like, what do you mean? He's like, oh, he used to come here to watch comedies. Like it was his favorite theater. And I was like, Really? And he was like, yeah, it was called Führerpalast until like 1972. And I was like, 1972? And the guy said, things go into style. Things come out of style. You know, it was very like. Yeah. So you were the American. It was awesome. A Jew represented. It was really emotional. It was really cool. Wow. And uh, that wasn't the Soho show. The Soho show was years later and it wasn't good. But, but, th but this was really special. It was called Comedy Sans Frontiers. And it was truly the 70th anniversary of the end of World War II, V-Day. Although they probably don't call that in Berlin. It was, uh, there are different days. Just day in Berlin. Yeah. May 6th, <laughs> May 6th, 2015 in Berlin. May 7th, 2015 in Moscow. In Moscow, that's apparently the one day there are the Soviet Union flags everywhere. Yeah. So like the person showing us around was like, it's not normally like this. You never see these flags. But it was, it was the coolest, weirdest experience is the only time I actually felt famous in my life. Like we got out of the van and people there were there with like photos, video, you know, like it was crazy. I think that's going to happen to you on Broadway. I've, after every show, said hi to anyone who wants to talk. <laughs> and so I'm that's wondering, awesome. we're that's trying to figure really out is. how to do that on Broadway. It's not going to be easy, but like, we'll figure it out. Like I'll say hi to anyone who wants to. Everyone asks me like, do you know my cousin? I'm like, there are a lot of Jews, man. I don't know your cousin. I'll be like, so and so, and I'm like, yeah, yeah I know that person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's my. Oh, that's the that's worst. Actually, it's like, that's uh, actually my. I do know you're him. Jewish, and like, yeah, yeah, I am. We don't all know each other. They're like, you know, well. they're like, do you know Adele Muskin? I'm like, yeah, that's my great aunt. Thank you for you know, like. So, Josh, do you have any advice for Alex? I would love about uh, going to Broadway. I was going to ask you whether you're going to play uh, alone in the Broadway softball league. Because I feel like I feel like finally there's a team that Leopoldstadt can beat if Alex plays alone. Parade offered to let me join their softball team. Parade beat us. Ooh. Even the other Jews beat us. Maybe I you should declare for free agency. Actually, that'd be really funny to declare for like the draft. We should absolutely. Yeah, I should we be a need, free. Can you hit? We need. We need. We need. I run. have such. I have such power to the opposite field. You wouldn't believe. Oh, that's which what is not. Which is not how. Which is not both not a euphemism and not uh, and not how anyone ever. Oh, this guy. He's got such power to the opposite field. That's you wouldn't actually believe. in this league. The weakest player is always in right field, and yeah, that would be helpful. I'm really. Are uh, you a righty? I'm a lefty, but I can hit from both sides of the plate. If oh, you know that's what I not mean. A euphemism I have a Again, all of those things are euphemisms. Yeah, I know. I'm aware. I'm now yeah. suddenly becoming aware of how baseball's euphemism. Well, it's not like going to third base is anything. Oh. <laughs> but you know, like I, I really, I'm dying to, I'm dying to do all of the little like Broadway stuff. Like you know, the signed mats that they give for when you open. 
like backstage, oh, photocopies of like happy opening from Bad Cinderella or something like that. Yeah. Right? Oh, like yeah. that all the cast signs it and they send a scan of it. I want actual signed mm. things. Like I'm gonna be I'll make sure that happens to you. This is crazy to me. Like, it's going to be cool. This is a really cool experience and stuff like this is, is opportunities aren't often afforded comedians. So I'm very like, I am worried about what's next, but also a big part of me is like, it's very not like me to like try to enjoy something whilst it's happening. And so I have to be like, remember, whenever anyone comes, I'm just like, remember this extremely rare gift of a thing. I grew up loving, you know, Norman Lear sent me a note when it was announced. And I'm like, as a fan... I need to like enjoy this very salubrious chance. I, I guess. But you're a Jew, so you can't. It's it's not even an option. Thanks, but, man. But, you know, you know like, <laughs> but whoever enjoys anything, what what they happen. It's also been a really like the audiences and the people our supporters are pretty Jewish. Like people come up to me being like, "I sent twenty people to your show," and then they'll say their name, and I'm like, "Actually, I know that because different people have come up to me going, so and so sent me, and I've never heard this guy Steve Maggiore has sent like I don't know the guy sent like forty people to the show." And so it's Jews who have sent other, like, it's like a piece of Jewish art that is both for Jews and non-Jews. And it's well, really we like, command all of our listeners oh, to please. go see the show. Where does one go to buy tickets? Repeatedly. You can buy tickets at justforusshow.com. The links are heavily available on any of my social media profiles. But yeah, if you just Google Alex Edelman, Just For Us Show, it's like, they'll be right there. And it's such a big theater. So please. <laughs> it's a thousand. My mom was hysterical. My mom, I told my mom the show was going to Broadway. She's like, which theater? And I was like, the Hudson. And she's like, how many seats is that? I'm like, 970 and she's like don't they have any other smaller theaters that you can play that, you know like so it'll be easier to sell it out I was like yeah thanks mom that's exactly <laughs> you know I'll ask. I'll ask I'll see if they'll let me just play a shoebox in Union Square but it's really cool I'm really and thanks for having me on again by the way I'm really excited, excited to come Please. see you you didn't give any wisdom nor do yeah. I have any okay do you I really not have, like, actually honestly I'm taking wisdom from you because I tend to focus on what's next and like this great job I'm having, what might it lead to? I've learned now, I've been in business long enough that it will lead to nothing or it'll take years before it does and trying to focus on the great thing that's happening now. I mean, that's the that's the wisdom. Enjoy the ride rather than focusing on where the next destination is. So you've provided me with advice. I think what's next is from a show or something like that. Plus enough. And yeah, that's right. It's so interesting because Josh, when I moved to LA, I sort of looked, I don't know how we met, but I sort of looked you up, I think. And we, where, how do we meet? I don't really remember either. No, but we like, I came to his house for Sukkot. That yeah. was our first hang. We sat sure. in his parents' sukkah nice. in, in LA. And it was very Amish. It's so sweet. <laughs> All right. I've run over my a lot of time, Shirley. I've been <laughs> rambling. I feel so bad. You can always for how do many the show in my parents' sukkah if you need to. Oh, yeah, that, that'd be great. Capacity eight. I will do the show literally anywhere. It's like such a, people are like, you sick of doing the show yet? And I'm like, no. Like, it's a thing that people walk out of really liking. It's the show is it's pretty fantastic. much. Unique. I'm excited to see it again. That's so nice, so many, man. It's crazy. It's I've never done. I've done stuff that people don't like. So like, I'm doing something that people like. I'll stick with the thing yeah. that people like. I've got ideas for the next show. Amazing, Alex Edelman. We'll all see you on Broadway at Just for Us. Thanks for having me. Justforusshow.com. Mailbox. 
get to the mailbox, our Josh versus Joshua conversation hit a chord. Our Joshua Molina's Hebrew name not being Yehoshua mm-hmm. hit a chord with people. So we have a lot coming in on that front. Who wants to take this first one? Re the Josh versus Joshua discussion. My brother's name is Jeffrey. My husband's <laughs> name is Jeffrey. My brother goes by Jeff. When I met my husband, I thought he also went by Jeff because everyone who knew him referred to him as Jeff Weiss, as if the first and last name were one. I thought it was super weird to have two Jeffs in my life, but luckily, as it turned out, my husband actually prefers to go by Jeffrey, but it's too nice of a person to ever tell people (laughs) otherwise. So we can distinguish the two in my family as Jeff and Jeffrey, though, honestly, I've always found it super formal to call him the full Jeffrey. Also, his Hebrew name is also Yaakov, and he sometimes goes by that. So since Joshua Molina prefers Joshua, maybe people with that (laughs) Hebrew name all have a commonality of wanting to go by their full English name instead of shortened versions. You hear that, Yaakov's? Yeah. He always persnickety about your English name. Apparently. I really love this letter. It also brings up people with full name names. Like, I married Ben Cohen. Like, he's he's a full-name person. And, like, I think it's if one of your syllables is short. Like, Jeff Weiss, we all know these people who are just, like, full-name people. Like, Josh Cross, producer Josh Cross, he's a full-name person. Mm-hmm. I think there's some, like, gematria reason if your first name is under four letters and your last name, like... I don't know. Let's let's keep this let's keep this going. If I want to hear if about you're Bridget Riffenstahl, for example. You can't just be, you know, B or That's right. Bridget. You have to be Bridget Riffenstahl. Okay, so this one comes in from listener Akaria. He says, Re Joshua versus Yaakov. Are there guidelines or customs about Hebrew or English or native language names being the same or similar? I am Adam with a Hebrew name Hanina after my father's mother Hannah. And I had to argue with my Hebrew school teachers that my Hebrew name was not Adam, Adam with Hebrew pronunciation, since some similarity or parallel was the norm. I would say up for grabs. Yes, it is certainly easy to streamline them. If you're Adam, you could just be an you're Adam Elizabeth, or, or Joshua, Yeshua, etc. But no, you could actually name, you could give whatever symbolic, lovely Hebrew if, name. If you like want. my mother, you're a maverick, you choose whatever you want. Whatever but, you want. Okay, I have to say, when we named my daughter Edith, her name's Edith Isadora, and we were like, my Israeli cousins are just going to call her Edith. Right. So let's just make that her Hebrew name and like sort of spare her what Akari is talking about. <laughs> So we caved on that. We had so no she's principles. Adit with an I? Adit Dora. That's very I don't. Nice. You help me spell Brilliant. it at the beginning. I don't remember what yes. we decided you on. You know what it means, it's, right? Good, fruitful earth. Yes, and I love that Dora. So Dora was my grandmother. Um, Dora the Explorer. Yeah, Dora. I guess. So she's Dora. But then you get like the door of a door. You get the generation thing, yes, which for oh, she was a survivor. So like that. I love it. The door of a door. Adit Dora. But, you know, all this Josh, Joshua, Yaakov stuff, we wanted to go to a higher authority on this. We wanted to go straight to the source and figure out the mystery of Noam de Molina. I hear higher authority and think I'm going to get a Hebrew national hot dog. That's just <laughs> people of a certain age. Hello. Hello, Mrs. Molina. What a pleasure. So welcome, Fran. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Hi, Mom. Hi. Hi, sweetie. So the I'm named after whom? You are named... Yaakov Yushaya, because Yaakov was dad's maternal grandfather. My great-grandpa. Yeah. And Yushaya was uh, after Charlie, who was your paternal grandfather's brother. And of course, Yushaya is Hebrew for Charlie. Yes. Well, that's what- <laughs> as, as the Talmud so famously. The dictates, yes. Right. 
Uh, and so Yehoshua never came on to this mix just to keep with the Joshua theme. That was never a consideration. No, even though I love the name Joshua and I love the name Yehoshua. I mean... It's that I'm named is I'm named after Jacob, a Yaakov. So that's... Exactly. I, I mean, it wasn't that I didn't like Yehoshua, but... But is it is it that you don't like Jacob? Right. Because it'd be, you're going to offend about 7% of our audience now. Do you not yeah, like the name I, Jacob? <laughs> you decided to go with Joshua because you preferred it, I guess. It's not that I don't like it. It's just I preferred Joshua. And it seems to me, since both of your Hebrew names were after your father's side, I could at least pick your English name. That's true. And I got it. Well, and, and well pick done. you did. And now, how about just Josh or Joshua? Because people always ask me how I want to be referred to. You know, you know, I, I don't have a preference. I'm, I'm wishy-washy, like Charlie Brown of the comic strip. I like them both. I like you, and I both. I like both names. I like you too. And if you had to rank the three children in order of, <laughs> <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. We'll save that for another episode. I can rank them in order of uh, age, oh, but that's... not who I like the most. <laughs> I that's love that. That is enough. smart and diplomatic. Are there any nicknames that Josh had growing up that you guys called him? Who are you talking to? <laughs> I don't that's know my sister. <laughs> that's my sister in the background. Who are you talking to? <laughs> At six thirty in the morning, to Josh LA time. on his uh, on his podcast. Toby can pop in and say what my nickname was. I was wondering who the hell was asking my mother who her favorite child is. (laughs) (laughs) It's the federal government, (laughs) ma'am. It's a census question. Can you hear him? They want to know know his pet names growing up. Oh, Weedy? Weedus? Weedy boy? Weedy, Weedus, Weedy boy. I don't know why. Did I smell of wheat as a young child? The cereal? Just, I don't know. Wheat, weedy, wheatus. Do we know why we call them wheatus? I have no idea. Well, it started as wheaty. That's very wholesome. Did he eat wheaties? It is, right? No. Not at all. We ate buckwheats. Maybe that's what it was. Maybe it was our passion for buckwheats. Or maybe it was my uh, love of the little rascals. (laughs) Well, that was quite a silence. (laughs) Buckwheat. All right, I'm old. Uh, yeah, those are my, and then occasionally uh, Dad would call me moron, mm. which I like. No, but no, I don't. But let me let me let me frame this. To me, that was his love language. I would just beat a joke to death until the point where he just went moron, and I loved it. I felt loved. <laughs> I felt full up. So, so Mrs. Molina, Fran, is there anything else we and our audience should know about our new co-host, Josh? Like any embarrassing details about his his young life? Well, he was an impossible toddler. (laughs) It made me want to tear my hair out. (laughs) Good night. See you in the morning. What, hon? Good night. See you in the morning. Oh, yeah. I already, I also tormented my, this is my older sister, Toby, whom I love dearly. And uh, I'm a little OCD-ish, as many of our people are. And I would always say, good night. See you in the morning to Toby. And she'd say, good night. See you in the morning. But I felt I had to respond to it, and I needed to have a response. So, of course, that is an endless loop that I would just do. I think, to, uh, Toby, until you cry. Yeah, she would just yell, make him stop. Make him stop. And make you him always stop. did it when mom and dad had company so that I would do it in front of other people. Wow. That just suggests a cruel streak I didn't know I had. <laughs> and yet, for some reason, you know, yet I love you dearly and did at that time as well. Thank you. you. I count on people like loving me in spite of my qualities <laughs> or liabilities. Well, Melina. Fa- 
By the way, also, they're never going to stop talking. Uh, those are great. Melinas, you started them. It's great. We this called could them. Be an hour. <laughs> what I else you got, you'll Mom? Pro- you'll probably want to erase this for the tape. <laughs> oh, but no. You used, you used to bite. <laughs> <laughs> I, think every, I think I have a memory of having my mouth washed out with soap because I bit Toby. That was the only thing that made you stop. Yeah, wow. but now my dental hygiene is beyond it reproach. Couldn't get, she couldn't get you to stop biting me. She, she put soap in your mouth. I'm oh, sorry. I'd like to apologize to Toby, my parents, Again, and all the listeners. Uh, my <laughs> extraordinary powers of forgiveness. Is, uh, for some reason, I never held any of it against it you. It is amazing, actually. So for our listeners, there's Toby, who's the oldest? Toby's the oldest. We, can, we want to talk names. Girl named Toby. Toby. Love it. Uh, and we have a younger sister named Nicole. And you're the middle child. I am the middle child. Although I wasn't always. That's how that works. I was the baby <laughs> of the family. And then someone else came in and destroyed my life by making me the middle child. Is it, The middle child is supposed to be the one, the attention getter, right? I mean, that's... I think so. Toby was the oldest and, you know, that that bears its own brunt. And I came in, I was the youngest. And, then, and when we did have another child, Toby did take me aside and say, mom and dad are never going to pay any attention to us ever again. And I, I, think I, came to, I think I came to my mom and said, is it true what I hear? The word on the street is with this new baby we're, that we're just done. And your father looked at you and lovingly said, moron. Moron. <laughs> All right, there it is. That's the Molina family. That's a whole boring story. Molinas, we thank you very much uh, for the gift of uh, Joshua Yaakov. Uh, and for talking to us yeah. this morning. You guys over-delivered. This was delightful. And we'll call you back at 6.30 next week also. Yeah. Every if week. you don't mind. <laughs> I love you both. Call me when he isn't listening and I'll give you the real lowdown. Yes. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you so much. Love you both. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. That was a charming conversation. I think we're going to have Fran and Toby Molina again and again and again on the show. They're but now, series regulars. But now it is time for some cantankerous notes because it would not be our mailbox without them. Shalom to the renewed Jew crew and a warm welcome to Joshua. I was pretty disappointed. <laughs> so I like five words between warm welcome and pretty disappointed. I love it. This is the Jewiest email <laughs> warm welcome, uh, By the group's cynical quickly. reaction to the Israel Day Parade. From what I hear, admittedly from thousands of miles away in Israel, it was a joyous celebration of Israel. So much of talk about Israel in the U.S. is political. If you love something, you also occasionally celebrate it. A mere 75 years into the modern state's existence, I think it's crazy to take it for granted. And celebration is a great way to avoid malaise or depression over political disagreements and geopolitical fears. Also, members of the opposition and many hundreds of anti-government protesters were happy to march in the parade. Yes, even along with government ministers. In contrast to Joshua, many people are still able to celebrate Israel. You hear that, Joshua? Oh, I hear it. Even in the presence of right-wing, quote-unquote, monsters currently in power, being capable of separating between the politics of the moment and the greater project of the return of the Jewish people to our homeland after thousands of years of yearning. Love you all, but I think you really missed a boat in this one. Peace and blessings from your longtime fan and sometimes advertiser, Rabbi Eitan Levy, Tekoa Israel. Tekoa! Rabbi Levy, we are fans as well, and we love you too. But I, I really, you know, everything you said makes perfect sense to me, except for why does it have to be down Fifth Avenue? Like, let's have it in Tekoa. That's a great place to mark 75 years of the Jewish people's return to their indigenous homeland. Let's have the parade next year in Tekoa. And Rabbi Levy, you are the Grand Marshal of the parade next year 
into Koa and we'll all come. I'll also say that I have a natural respect built in for Horim Vimorim, parents and teachers. And so certainly rabbis fall in the uh, latter category. So I have respect for the rabbi. But all that said, I have to tell him to stick it in his pipe. And here's why. I have no problem with his disagreeing with my decision not to march in the Celebrate Israel parade because I didn't want to march with Netanyahu, Bibi's cabinet ministers. But his suggestion or statement, really, that I'm incapable of celebrating Israel is so far off the mark and so unfair and suggests a very little due diligence done on the rabbi's behalf or by the rabbi. I do celebrate Israel. I've probably spoken to 80 Jewish federations and colleges in part about Israel and advocating for a peaceful and democratic Israel, often with people who rapidly disagree with me and are right-wingers. I have no problem with that. I've gone to rallies in support of Israel. I've spoken at events for Israel bonds. You sit on boards of Israel Indeed, a pro-Israel organization. I love Israel. I celebrate Israel. This is one decision that I made. You eat falafel uh, once a week. You're a committed... Israel file. So, Rabbi, thank you for the warm welcome. See you in Israel. <laughs> L'shanaba shetwa, as they say in Hebrew. Uh, Stephanie, this is really for you. Okay, this is a great letter. Hi, guys. I was snickering when Stephanie mentioned the universal sign of woman playing man, the French. <laughs> the French braid. This was, of course, about my right. all-girl summer camp. I went to an Orthodox girl's summer camp, and there was a second signal of manhood: <laughs> the ever-present knickers. You see, since this was an all-girls camp putting on a play for an all-female audience, one might think that having the male actresses or the actresses playing male parts in pants might be considered acceptable. But heaven forfend, perhaps this would qualify as beged-ish. I'm going to let Liel explain that one, (laughs) she writes, because I'm too lazy. A prohibition against wearing the other sex's clothes. Continue. And are far too immodest for an all-female crowd. Anyway, instead, we had to wear these hilarious knickers, knee-length balloon pants that no human would ever be caught dead in outside the base Yaakov camp play. That plus a French braid equaled male character. (laughs) And being above 5'4". So when Joshua mentioned getting to play parts you haven't really aged into yet, did he have in mind a 14-year-old girl in a French braid and knickers playing Joseph Stalin in song? Of course he did. (laughs) (laughs) I do now, anyway. A guten Zimmer, Hanallah from Brooklyn. Incredible, incredible letter. letter. Very good letter. I think I think I won the movie rights to that play. <laughs> it's called Hanala from Brooklyn. Keep the letters coming. You can send us emails at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or you can leave us messages on our listener line, 914-570-4869. Yell at us, praise us, laugh at us. We're here for all of it. Our Gentile of the Week is the Gentilic writer Will Leach. He was the founding editor of the sports blog Deadspin of Blessed Memory. It may still be on, but I don't read it because <laughs> Will Leach is not there. And he now writes about sports for outlets like New York Magazine, MLB.com. He's also a novelist, and he joined me to talk about his new summary-defying book, The Time Has Come, and also about coaching Little League and fathers and baseball and other American staples. Have a listen. Well, Leach, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's very much an honor. I have read The Time Has Come and I absolutely loved it, but I have been agonizing over it because I have no fucking clue 
how to introduce the plot of this book without <laughs> literally ruining everything, even with a plot description. Now, you wrote it. Help me out here. Yeah, welcome to my me and my publicist nightmare. Uh, this is <laughs> across the board is trying to figure out how that is. I usually start with saying that if you like old Robert Altman movies like uh, Shortcuts or Nashville right. or like Magnolia by Paul Thomas Anderson, it takes the structure of that where we follow. There's one woman who announces at the beginning of the book that she believes something horrible is happening at a local pharmacy. If you get shades of like Pizzagate or maybe the conspiracy kind of world of that, that's probably not necessarily wrong. So she announces that at like a 524 on June 18th, I'm going to go into this pharmacy and I'm going to finally stop what's happening. And so then we follow six characters throughout that day leading up to where they all collide at that time. So hopefully you'll be able to get involved with the regular parts of their day, but still have a sense of suspense as it kind of goes along. Now, if you're wondering, wow, good job with that description, still can't do it in an elevator. Well, the, the book is, is also difficult to summarize, wonderful to read in another way. It is a thriller, but also very funny, but also with like real touching, even heartbreaking moments to it. Add that to the pile. The initial idea of the book was uh, it feels like the last few years have been very difficult and have caused people some emotional distress. I wanted to capture that feeling. The book takes place in June 2021. It is not a pandemic book. My publicist will hit me over the head with a mallet if I make people think that this is a, this is a, this is a pandemic book, because it's not. But it is about that time that how we've all kind of gone through these very traumatic experiences and how you try to build upon it and how you try to move on and move forward in a lot of ways while still reintegrating yourself back into the larger society. So hopefully it captures that in a funny but also kind of sad way, in a way that's also, I always have to trick people into it being a thriller because the idea is that you can follow people throughout their regular lives and it will feel thrilling to you because you know this terrible thing is coming, even though they don't. I guess that's my, it's my way to trick you into finding suspense. When you sit there at the sort of drafting stage, be like, look, I want to investigate this descent into madness. I want to investigate what makes people really lose their shit without being judgmental, without kind of milking it just for an easy joke, really descend with them into the depths of hell. What's the first step, emotionally speaking? What's your entryway into their lives? Well, like, you know, Tina in particular, she's the one that... The school teacher at the heart of this book. Yes, and she is... I mean, she's had an incredibly difficult life and things have really gone wrong for her in every possible way. Some of those things are her fault and some of those things are not her fault. But, you know, the, the phrase that kind of got me through really over the last two or three years was just trying to remember that no one is at their best right now. <laughs> You'd see people losing their minds in all sorts of different ways. And also, I'm generally a pretty level-headed, calm, Midwestern sort of person. And I was not like that. So like being aware that people were not at their best, but they're still trying, you know, they're still trying to do the best. We're all trying to navigate this thing. In a lot of ways, the pandemic and really the last three years or three or four years, or really, you could argue since 2015, have been like this, something that we've all gone through and how we react to it, I think both tells us a little better about ourselves, but sometimes can make you feel like people are somehow a different species than you. Like I, I look at people like knocking over masks in Target and I'm like, are those human beings? Are we sure? It's so hard though, right? Because so much of our public discourse has been almost an assault on this basic human empathy, right? Please reduce the social media intake. It will be so good for you. I'm not saying social media has no value, but I think because... Every debate inevitably becomes flattened. It becomes, you are either with me or you are not with me. And I think it becomes, therefore, if you are not with me, you are a villain. You are an enemy. You are someone to fight against. And forgive me, but like when I walk around the world, I don't actually see people doing that in the real world. Sometimes, sometimes you do. But generally speaking, 
In my previous book, How Lucky, the main character, Daniel, talks about how, you know, he has he's a severe disability. And so he spends a lot of time online and he talks about how the difference between when he's online and when he's, when he's out in the real world. At a certain level, no one will ever go on social media and say, oh, my gosh, someone opened a door for me today. They didn't have to. They don't even know me. They'll never see me again the rest of my life. But they just went ahead and opened the door for me. Or they waited. They waited for me to do that little short little shuffle because they held the door for me as I was going in here. No one ever tweets about that. You know, like, OMG, people were nice today. <laughs> like there are people in social media that I agree with on 99.9% of the things in the world, but that 0.01% could divide us forever because of the way this conversation goes. I find that a frustrating way to communicate with people and certainly not good for, you know, the general human experience. And so uh, I tried to remember that as I was kind of going into that, like there are people I disagree with dramatically on a lot of things, which makes sense. They're different people than I am. They have had different life experience than I have. Of course, we disagree. It doesn't make them monsters just as it doesn't make me a monster. Much as I love your novels, I love your writing about sports very much as well, especially Are We Winning, which is a tremendous book. Oh, thank you. About fathers and sons in baseball, those being my obsessions. But there's one piece by you that I've read, I think maybe six or seven years ago, and I, I keep reading. And I'm going to read again in a couple of weeks when it's Father's Day because it's about Little League. I've just started coaching Little League myself. Everyone should go out and read it. But if I may ask you to capture the essence of it in a few words, I'd be grateful. Yeah, so my father coached me in Little League. I now coach Little I just quit coaching Little League last year. My father coached eight to 10 years old Little League. And I always wondered, why did he stop at 10 years old? And now that I have a 10-year-old, I was like, oh, that's why. Because <laughs> everyone gets super intense and crazy about it. And so if you're like nine years old and you really love baseball and you're really obsessed with baseball, you're, you're already three quarters out. of the way there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You're already there. So that was kind of where I was. And so I was one of the better players on the team. But like... My coach would never, ever play me. Like, he, would, he would play me, but he would give all these opportunities to all of these other players. It was very frustrating. I would get All those other players loved him. I was like, why isn't this coach playing me more? And of course, it was because it was my dad. <laughs> he was giving other people opportunities and like not just being a good coach for me, but showing me the value of community and the value of teamwork and kind of holding me into the idea that like... It is not just about you. You are a member of some sort of larger thing that is larger than who you are. I wrote a whole book. Uh, I remember the writer Chuck Klosterman blurbed Are We Winning and said, this is the best book ever written about Midwestern fatherhood by a childless man from Brooklyn. <laughs> that was very funny. Uh, but now I have kids. Now I have kids. And so I, I kind of appreciate it a little bit more. But, you know, and the book is not just about fatherhood and baseball. It's about parenthood and baseball. There are a lot of women in talking about uh, their kids playing baseball or softball. But it's really about that bond between, you know, that old city slickers idea that I couldn't talk to my old man about anything, but I could talk to him about baseball. And that's kind of silly and city slickers-y, but also kind of true. And also something, the idea that, like, one of the things I love about baseball, I always say that like baseball's able to get out emotions that are generally unacceptable in other aspects of your life. Look, I'm a Mets fan. This is very true for me. <laughs> I'm sure I'm so and I'm sorry, by the way. Okay. And um, think about things that make you jump up and just spontaneously scream. Like maybe it's like a spider <laughs> and baseball, right? And or sports. And so I feel like that's always been very good about sports. Is that it's a way like you know it, the world is complicated. The world is scary. The world is difficult. It's confusing sports or not my team if my team wins i am happy and if they lose i am sad i am addicted to that kind of notion and certainly sports is complex as well i don't mean to to but in the moment of talking about sports there's a love and obsession that uh and, uh, and a healthy way to get out rough emotions sometimes 
I think that's so, so true and so beautifully said. But when I read this piece the most recent time before accepting my, my position as coach, <laughs> I thought to myself, gee, I, I don't know. I, I hope I don't meet any of those guys described in the piece, the other coaches who are not your father, who really just wanted the team to win. To win right. and, and here I go into this league. And look, I, I, I want to be perfectly frank. There are a lot of wonderful moms and dads who coach alongside me and the various teams who are tremendous. But there are also a lot of people who I see who really are sort of single-handedly obsessed with the idea of, well, the team has to succeed. The most important thing here is to get these kids to hit well and field well and like kind of be better baseball players. And to me, that really just is a terrible, terrible way of being not just a coach or really an adult, but a human being. Because the whole point, which your father understands so well and which you captured so beautifully is you're here to help these kids grow as people, right? You're here to make them confident. You're here to make the really small guy find the one position in the team that he could actually play or the really large guy who can't hit to save his life, understand that he could be good at something and could be part of something. Why are so many grownups suck at being grownups? Uh, you know, it's funny. There actually is a Little League coaching character in The Time Has Come that's inspired by. I've seen a lot of Little League baseball over the last couple of years. With a wonderful subplot about Little League, which we will not spoil at all. Yes. What I have found is partly... Like, oh, if I'd have had a good coach as a kid, I'd be playing in the majors right now. If I'd have had a good coach, I'm going to be that good coach. But honestly, I think it's really more about, I think a lot of people say when they get into Little League, they're like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm here to teach these kids. I'm here to let these kids have a good time. And at a certain level, they believe it for a while, but there's just something about that scoreboard. <laughs> there's something about that scoreboard that I think turns people. You know, it's funny. I My son played youth league basketball and the organizers of a tournament Actually, with I think he was like seven years old, they actually turned the scoreboard away from the fans just so the players could see it. Only the players could see it. Everyone else was just supposed to watch their kids and don't care what the score is and don't worry about that and just enjoy the game for what it is and watching your kids do stuff. The kids can know just so they know how much time's left and they don't have that. But at a certain level, like that's not what this is about. It lasted one game and so many parents complained. So I think there is something kind of like you really got to work at it. You really got to work yeah, at it. Literally, last week, I've had a father say to me like, oh, you know, my uh, kid also plays soccer. I feel like soccer is really war for him, but pff, baseball, he's just having fun. And the guy was saying this as a complaint. <laughs> he was like, how dare you yeah. make this an enjoyable experience? <laughs> And not all about the winning. And it's funny because, again, you know, and like I said, I, I, this is why I stopped coaching after 10 years old, because at a certain level, eventually it just becomes kind of overwhelming that they, they get. And listen, at a certain level, I am not against, for the record, I'm not against kids feeling like if they work hard at something and they try to get better at it, they will be rewarded with some success. Like I'm not up there saying strike out every time. What do I care? Like I want to get them to improve. I want them to feel better. But the actual notion of like winning the game as the primary reason that you're coaching the league, or even one of the first 10, maybe 15 reason coaching little league, it seems to be very absurd. Cause it, like my goal, what you're really trying to do is you're trying to make these kids baseball fans. You're trying to instill them the notion of the love of baseball. That's what matters. Is this getting, though, harder and harder to even get kids to love the game? Because, look, I'm, I'm a sports fanatic. I cannot tell you how much of my emotional, intellectual, financial bandwidth uh, <laughs> is consumed by following sports wherever I can find them. But when you hear of, say, the Minnesota Vikings paying back their loans in the stadium 
26 years earlier because, you know, sports gambling paid them so much money that they literally, you know, fast track two decades worth. But when you hear about all this like big business, impersonal, yeah, there's still great athletes and still great stories, but it's getting harder and harder to care about sports. I find that particularly as things get ugly and uglier, it's funny, gambling is its whole other sort of thing on this because I I am definitely like the Luddite when it comes to gambling. Like I don't like, I actually feel like it's bad. But even before Deadspin started, Gawker actually offered me to do a gambling site. And I said, actually, I think gambling is bad for the world. It is really corrosive to the soul. So no, I probably shouldn't do your gambling site. So you can imagine how I feel now. But certainly when it comes to the larger business, it gets harder and harder. But the thing I try to remember, like I'm a big St. Louis Cardinals fan. St. Louis Cardinals are my favorite team. I get so frustrated with the players, with the owners, with the ugliness of their financial situation there where the Cardinals have had a very corrosive aspect on downtown St. Louis. So it's actually hurt downtown St. Louis. That is hard for me to reconcile as someone that cares about the civic good and also loves the Cardinals. What I try to think about it is the people that own the team, the people that play for the team, the people that work for the team, they are stewards. You are a Mets fan. I don't know if you know this or not. You've had some difficult ownership situations in the past. So I hear. So at a certain level, though, that's not what the Mets are to you. The Mets are not the owners. It's not the stadium. It's not even really the players. The Mets are you and the people that care about the Mets like you do that you talk to about the Mets. The Mets are the institutional memory of you watching them for the last however many years of your life. You remembering the 1990 two Mets and you remembering this player and it's still grousing about the Bonilla uh, still paying the Bonilla. Yeah, or apologizing to my children almost daily for doing this to them and making the Mets fan too. I'm like, I'm exactly. really sorry guys. But, but that's the thing. It's the story of your life. Like the actual people who work for the Mets in 30 years, they're going to be gone. Players are going to be on. The owners may be gone. They may be in the new stadium. They may have a different name for kind of like, who knows? Who knows all the different things that can happen over the team in the next 30 years. But you're going to still be there. You're going to still be there just like you were 30 years ago. The Mets are, they don't belong to Steve Cohen. They belong to you. They are a construct that the owners and the players and everyone else, they are stewards. It is a public trust in a certain way. The fandom of a team, your love of a team, your love of a sport can be independent for you from the overarching larger thing in sports. doesn't mean ignore those things, but for that emotional connection, I find it helpful to think, no, the Cardinals are mine and they're my sons and they're my dads. What you guys are doing, you're mucking it up right now and the Cardinals are mucking it up right now. But like, I will be there beyond you. So I'll wait you out in a certain way. And I think that's the way I kind of try to think of it. Well, Willich, thank you so much for being our guest. Oh man, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's time for mazel tovs. Mazel tovim. Is that a thing? Did I just make that up? Mausoleum tovim. That works. Mausoleums. Mausoleums. Mouse. Let's go. Um, I wish to extend a hearty mazel tov to Tony Award winner. I don't care. This is the, now the official designation. Tony Award winner, Joshua Molina, and the rest of the Tony Award winners at the Tony Award winning play, Leopoldstadt. And we are so excited because on June 22nd, and I'm sorry if you have not already bought tickets, well, no luck for you because we have sold out. We will be watching this wonderful play and then chatting to our co-star who will be wearing a top hat and some very stylish clothes. 
I'm coming in like cowboy boots and a, and a cowboy hat. If we're wearing costumes, like we're, I know. All, I feel we're like, all in. Congrats to everyone who got tickets because now it's a Tony winning play that we are That's all going right. to see together. Correct. <laughs> Tony award winning, Joshua Molina, do you have? I have a Mazel Tov. Mazel Tov to Temple Brith Kodesh in Rochester, New York on their 175th anniversary celebration on June 10th. They are indeed one of the few shuls in the country to reach that milestone. That's incredible. Well done. And we're going to have a bubble party there very soon. <laughs> Should. Bubble parties in Rochester. Cannot wait. We also have a mazel tov to the Sheeran family, uh, some of our favorite listeners. Their son's side just turned three. Shmuel Chaim, we love you. Happy birthday. Mazel tov to you, Shmuel Chaim. And, and in mazel. honor of Shmuel's birthday, by the way, Sai, incredible name. Part of the old Jewish names we gotta be, we got to be bringing back. So happy for the Sheerans. We got a video of Sai, who not only listens to Unorthodox, but loved Shalom Grover, my deranged post-credits <laughs> <laughs> Grover riff. Here he is enjoying some of that. Shalom, this is Grover. <laughs> you know, if your name is Sai, you have to grow up to be a mob accountant. There's just no other. <laughs> or no a other. Muppet accountant. <laughs> All right. Unorthodox is a production of Tablet Studios. The show is hosted by me, Stephanie Butnick, with Liel Leibovitz and Tony Award winning <laughs> Joshua Molina. This ends this week. Never ends. Get your Tony Award winning t-shirts for Unorthodox at tabletstudios.com. We are produced and edited by Josh Cross, Robert Scaramuccia, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. And our team includes Tanya Singer, Courtney Hazlett, Jerome Rusquet, with help from Sam Hacker and Jordana La Rosa. Our episode art is by Esther Werdiger. Our logo and merch is designed by Jenny Rosbrook. Our theme music is by Golem. And our news and mailbox themes are by Steve Barton. Send us emails at unorthodoxtabletmag.com or leave us a message on our listener line, 914-570-4869. That actually goes straight to your childhood home in Westchester, Joshua. I will answer. <laughs> That's it for today. Until next week. Shalom, friends. A A Messiah. Yeah. There are two Messiahs. Really? Yeah. Good. There's the Messiah that the dark figure, Mashiach Ben Yusuf, who comes. If you like the first one, you're going to love. <laughs> the first one clears the ground. The first one is a terrible figure, but you need him before the second one, Mashiach Ben David, can come and be like, oh, now it's the fun and games. It's like bad cop. He's the good closer. Cop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one is sort of the Sandy Koufax and the other one is sort of, <laughs> right. yeah, yeah. The so. Mariano Rivera. Exactly. Of, uh, sure. The Mariano well Rivera. Enter Sandman <laughs> plays. He comes out into the Megiddo Valley and that's it. <laughs>